episode 41 of the Tactical Breakdown podcast. Today we are talking with two real life DEA narcos. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, welcome back to Tactical Breakdown. It is July 2020, and man, is the world crazy right now. If you are in law enforcement or you even support law enforcement, you are in the middle of it, and uh, I just want to let you know that you always will have my support, and I'm with you, and if there's anything that I can do to help support you or your agency or department, please let me know. I'll do anything I can. With that, one of the things that we've put together and been a part of is the International Law Enforcement Training Summit. Now, if you haven't already heard about this, it takes place this July 27th through 31st online, and it's completely free. So if you haven't already checked it out, go to iletsummit.com. That's I-L-E-T summit.com. Links are in the show notes. You can get access to over 75 hours of training content from over 40 of the world's top instructors, many of whom you know by name. And uh, we've partnered with companies and organizations like Force Science, Caliber Press, the California Peace Officers Association, the International Police Association, and many, many more. So check it out. Go to iletsummit.com and let me know what you think. Shoot me a message, send me an email, and uh, tell me if you're going to be signed up for this summit or not. Now, today's episode, I'm really excited. We have two gentlemen that you probably know their names if you like watching Netflix. Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. Those are the real-life DEA agents who helped take down Pablo Escobar. You can see their likeness in the Netflix series Narcos. And I had the pleasure of speaking with these two gentlemen and asking them questions about what it's like to be DEA agents dealing with cartels. Was their mission successful? and what they think the outlook for policing is going forward. It's a real interesting episode. I hope you enjoy it. And again, if you have any questions or you want to contact these guys, check out the show notes page. We'll have all that information in there for you. All right, without any further ado, let's jump into this conversation I had with Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. Here we go. All right, we have a super special episode today. I'm really lucky and honored to have two amazing former DEA special agents, investigators, undercover geniuses, Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. So what I would love to do before we kind of jump into discussing what the roles were with you guys in your undercover work, can, can uh, one of you maybe just lay out what the investigation was? You wrote, you wrote a book, Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar, and that's what you guys do. You go around the world, you speak to large groups of people sharing your story about the whole investigation and, and all those things. So uh, Javier, can you kind of lay that out for us real quick and explain kind of what that investigation was about? 
Yes, Adam, and thanks again for inviting us to your show. Basically, you know, and, and you mentioned, uh, yeah, we, we have written a book and, you know, we do a lot of presentations and it's the uh, basically the the rise and fall of Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. Steve and I were assigned uh, to, the, to work with the Colombia National uh, Police after Pablo Escobar escaped. Uh, in uh, 1991. He had been in prison for about a year. So uh, he escaped. Then we were assigned. We lived with uh, what we call, it was called the search squad, the Colombian National Police, working and uh, looking for Pablo Escobar. So Steve and I moved in with them at their invite. And it, it, it really, we, we got to find out, we got to uh, work uh, closely with them looking for Pablo Escobar, and, and basically Pablo Escobar at this time was the worst, most notorious barbaric narco-trafficker we had ever seen. Uh, Pablo Escobar was, grew up poor, then all of a sudden he got into the coke business, and before it was all over, he was responsible for 80% of the cocaine that was reaching the world. And he gained his notoriety by the use of terrorism. He uh, killed anybody who got in his way, uh, killed presidential candidates, judges, put bombs on commercial airlines, uh, bounties on police officers. So this guy was the most violent trafficker we had ever seen. So Steve and I moved in with him. We helped in the search of Pablo Escobar until that uh, final day when he was shot by the Colombian National Police. So by being with there with them, working hand in hand, gave us that that uh, I guess that insight, that firsthand knowledge. However, again, like we tell people in our presentations, we lost a lot of good friends that were killed by Pablo Escobar. It's really interesting to me. I mean, the, there's a lot of things to unpack in in these types of operations, right? You have the cooperation between. Um, the U.S. and the Colombian governments. You have the cooperation on the ground between you guys and, you know, the, the Colombian police and everybody that was involved with that on their end. And there's also then how your expertise with the DEA was able to assist, you know, the Colombian police when they were trying to track him down. Was there, and so we can, we can kind of jump into these one at a time. What, what do you think was the, was the major reason why they brought the DEA in to assist? Well, and, and Adam, this is Steve. Thank you very much also for, for having us on the show today. It's an honor to be here with you. You bring up a very good point because a lot of people that we, in some of the presentations we do, especially the public, you know, we'll get feedback of, why are you ugly Americans sticking your head in some other country's drug business? Well, it wasn't just like Javier and I decided we were going to fly to Colombia and help the Colombian National Police, you know. We were invited <laughs> by the, the government. Down there, yeah. I mean, we're good, but damn, we're not that good, right? So uh, we're there at the invitation of the Colombian government. And what Javier didn't tell you, and he's very humble about this, is I spent three years in Colombia. He spent six and a half years there. So, you know, he arrived in 1988 when uh, Escobar was in his heyday. But the investigation side of things wasn't going where it should, just simply because the agents there weren't dedicated to the mission, I guess is a nice way to put it. So he, you know, he starts working with Columbia National Police. He earns their trust and respect. I show up three, three years later um, because he and I are partners 
you know, I was accepted by the Columbia National Police. Now I had still earned their respect, but um, you know, that's that's basically how we were able to work with them. Uh, could they have done this without us? Absolutely. But what we brought to the table was additional resources that they didn't have access to, additional intelligence outlets because DEA has so many offices worldwide. Uh, we were able to get information out to them and they would respond with information back to us, which we could share with Columbia National Police. Uh, through the American government, you know, we had, uh, when Escobar escaped, you know, the very next day is when Javier and I started living in Medellin for the next 18 months. A couple weeks after that, our ambassador brought in the U.S. Army's Delta Force and the U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6. So we had these these high, I mean, these are the, these are the coolest operators in the world. I mean, these are, these are the tough guys, you know. Um, but their mission is completely different than law enforcement. You know, they, I love their, their motto, we find, fix, and finish. <laughs> you know, we'd love to be able to do that in law enforcement, but, you know, we stay within the laws and the Constitution. So that was the big difference. Uh, they did bring a lot of uh, positive things to the table, but um, they, just, they weren't allowed to go out on operations. And that's, Javier and I weren't supposed to go out on operations either, but, you know, we decided at the very beginning, we can't do our job if we don't do that. So for 18 months, we were, flying out on Huey gunships, doing raids on ranches, meeting informants, doing surveillances. Javier participated in a couple of arrests um, that he was able to affect before the, the Colombian cops really got there on the scene. So it's, uh, it, it's not that there's something special about us. And, and this is one thing we try to get across to anybody that will listen to our little story. Javier and I are nothing more than just a couple of small-town country boys we were local cops to start with in our communities, uniformed cops, they eventually became DEA agents and got to work the case of a lifetime. That's, <laughs> you know, it's not like we're into those Marvels, Avengers, or anybody like that. We were just dedicated police officers that went out and did our job. Yeah, it's really interesting. I love the... I love the fact that where where you guys started, and so let's, let's touch on that real quick. Where... Um, for when we can go with Stephen, go with you first, and then and then we'll move over to Javier. When you got into when you started first working with the DEA, what was the reason why you wanted to join, and then what kind of what were you responsible for when you first started? Gotcha. So I started in 1975 as a uniformed police officer in a little town called Bluefield, West Virginia. We only had 35 cops. I did that for six years, and I was a railroad cop with uh, the Norfolk Southern Railroad for five and a half years, but. During that 11 and a half years, the cases that I liked to work most were drug cases. I just really found them intriguing, you know, and I had read books and I had talked to uh, narcotics agents and I thought, man, that's, that sounds like what I really want to do. And I applied for DEA and quite honestly, at the beginning, I didn't know what DEA was. But uh, a good friend of mine, uh, a guy named Pete Ramey, used to work as a Virginia State Trooper and, and he was on a DEA task force in Virginia. He really got me interested and, and so I applied. Uh, that's why I wanted to go. It was it was something new. I thought, well, you know, this sounds like it's really challenging. And you know what, Adam? I've been watching Miami Vice on TV, so hell, I knew everything there was to know about <laughs> drug cases, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fast so, cars and, my, and fast women. Yeah, I got you. There you go. And the first my first post to duty after the academy was Miami, Florida. I got there in 1987. It was uh, still the Wild West days. I mean, just. Um, if you're not in law enforcement or, or a first responder role or military, you may not understand this, 
but it was as exciting as it could be. You know, there was shootings, there was death, there was uh, humongous loads of cocaine coming to the United States that we were seizing. Uh, you know, you didn't have the big fancy speedboats and the Ferraris like uh, Crockett and Tubbs had on Miami Vice, but it was just one of the most exciting things I'd ever done. Um, even in 1989, we had a deal go bad. We got into a shootout and my partner gets hit twice. He survived, but our informant didn't. He was shot in the throat and he died before we could get him to the hospital. And as horrendous an act as that was, it was exciting, you know, and you understand that. So it's, uh, it's like an adrenaline rush. I don't think I can handle it now. You know, my old age, I'd probably have a heart attack from all that, but it was just, I couldn't think of anything more exciting than what I was doing with DEA. That's awesome. Javier, how about you? Where'd you get your start? Yeah, I got my start in a, in a place uh, on the border, Laredo, Texas, which is uh, right across the Mexican border. And it was uh, with a sheriff's office. I was going to college. I was working on my degree. And uh, I was working. I had the night shift. And I'd get off work. And I'd go to do my classes. I'd be off at noon and then go sleep until all over again. So I was always interested. I was a sociology, psychology major. And, um, you know, so, uh, I got offered a part, I mean, I mean, like I said, working at the sheriff's office and then towards, towards the end, getting my degree, you know, I, uh, looked at the bulletin board and I saw that DEA was hiring and, uh, I, I did not know what DEA was. So I asked a buddy of mine, say, yeah, it's the federal marks and they were paying a lot more than the sheriff's office. So that was my ambition. So I applied and bought, uh, took about a year. And then uh, once I got selected, uh, it was I wanted to you know DEA you can you can tell them hey you want to do a big city first small place I want to do the big cities either L.A. Miami Houston New York and uh, you know <laughs> to my doubt and afterwards I got selected for Austin Texas which was uh, Austin was a great place at the time and people were asking me who do you know in DA where you got Austin Austin was the capital it was a music uh, headquarters I mean the music was just starting off it was a great place to be Austin Texas so that's where I got sent and I did a four years there and did a lot of street stuff and uh, I always wanted to go see how the major league uh, players were that's why I you know got uh, went forward and got selected uh, went to Columbia and that's where I met Steve and that's where we got involved with uh, you know with Pablo Escobar there's a few things I want to go back to but I one quick because this just came up in my mind how after the the whole case and everything wrapped with Escobar, how long were you guys, did you guys stay active with DEA before you retired? Well, he was killed in December, 1993 and I retired in June, 2013 and Javier retired in January 14th. Okay. So right. there's, there's quite a bit after the, oh, yeah. the Escobar case. Let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Where, yeah. Let's I'm, I'm interested because you guys were, as far as timeline goes, you're pretty recently out of the game and I don't think you're probably out of the game, um, but you're, you're not active duty. So what do you think in the, from the time that that case wrapped, what do you think was the overall impact immediately? And then now long tail, now that it's been 20 years, how 20 plus years how how have you seen the impacts of the case um with escobar so steve i can i'll kick it off to you 
Well, uh, that's a great question too. And, and you know, in every show we do around the world, we offer a Q and A at the end of the show where people can ask questions. And a lot of the questions we get are just exactly what you just asked. Did did the takedown of Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel really have a positive impact on narcotics trafficking in the world? And the answer is yes, it did. The real answer is, but it only lasted about two weeks because we all know the Cali cartel was was standing behind the wings, waiting to take over everything. So DEA goes back in. Javier was part of that. They took down the Cali cartel. Well, then you got the North Valley cartel steps in. We take them down. A guy named Don Verna steps in. We take him down. It just continues. And, and you know how it is. When, when one big criminal is taken out, there's a hundred smaller criminals waiting to take his place. So um, then that leads into the other part of your question there. Long term, people say, well, you know, this war on drugs, uh, is that a good thing or should we just do away with it? Should we just legalize everything? Well, first of, of all, no, don't legalize. That's not helping the problem. That's exacerbating the problem. That's just increasing it exponentially so that we have more problems than we can ever deal with. But, you know, and here's the reality. Um, we tell people in the United States, can you go out on just about any street corner in the United States and buy cocaine right now? And we all know the answer is yes. So the long-term effect of taking out Pablo was not positive. We're, our, our drug problems are probably bigger now than they were back then. So, you know, we've got to do something different, I guess, is is the point I'm trying to get here. Yeah, and also, and we got to also remember that the, 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 the demise, the takedown of Pablo was also, it, it was more of a personal vendetta uh, with the police because of all the people that Pablo Escobar killed. And, you know, Pablo Escobar was vicious about it. He killed you, the family. I mean, we saw all the atrocities that he committed, you know, the, the the next president of Colombia, Pablo Escobar, killed the uh, bombing on on commercial airlines, bombing on buildings, uh, sicarios, killing police officers. So, you know, that search was, like you said, it, it was just a more of a personal vendetta with Pablo Escobar. But, you know, Steve is right. You know, it was about two weeks. Then Cali took it over. And, but, you know, again, there's still the, the traffickers are out there. And, you know, I tell people, you know what, as long as they can make money, they don't care who dies in the trafficking business. We've seen the, the Mexican cartels right now. Uh, look what they're doing in Mexico, the violence, the atrocities that they're committing. And it's all over. You know, they, I need to get my load across. I need to make my money. And if I got a corrupt people if i gotta kill people so be it and that's their uh their business model some of the stuff I, what you get in the media um probably doesn't compare to what actually happened on the ground and i think everybody listening to this show especially in law enforcement or the military understand that there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get released yes oh, that is especially right now in, in mexico i mean i'm in the border I, and i retired out of Houston, where, you know, I oversaw the border, I had about 600 guys, and a lot of stuff in Mexico does not get reported, you know, the, the media, and, and the, the media reports that they go after the media people. We've seen examples. I mean, it, it's it's out there. The loads are still uh, coming across. We just, you know, we need to uh, do a better job. We, we need to be, uh, I don't know what the, <laughs> if I had the solution, man, we'd be, we'd be rich, right? But uh, it's dope still coming across. 
there's two two things that I want to touch on. One is the the toll it takes on an officer to do this kind of work, and the other is just and we can touch on this one real quick is as you both have said, you know, the, the, the immediate impact was kind of a two week lull. And then obviously the, the next in line steps up. There's, there's been a lot of media. There's been a lot of Hollywood movies that have come out lately. Um, like Sicario would probably be the most famous example of it where they show a, an agency like the CIA stepping in and working outside of the lines and, and bringing in, you know, Delta, bringing in somebody from the teams or bringing the teams in to basically just take people out or working with, in that case, a Sicario um, or Hitman. Do you think that at some point we're going to move, start moving towards just wholesale, like hunting of these types of criminals? Or do you think it's probably going to maintain a status quo for probably ever? So um, Steve, maybe I'll kick it off to you. Okay, so on your first question, the toll it takes, um, <clears throat> you know, quite honestly, it probably takes a harder toll on your family than it does you personally because, you know, this is what we chose to do. We chose to live this exciting lifestyle to put ourselves in danger, uh, you know, to address the biggest narco narcotics trafficker in the world. Um, so it, it, you know, you have to have a very, very strong work ethic to stay with it because it'd be very easy to say, uh, to get burnt out, uh, to say, that, you know, the heck with this, man. It's not worth it. Nobody can catch this guy. So you've got to have that commitment to your mission. Uh, and it's, it's, we tell, uh, especially young people now that contact us about wanting to become DE agents, we try to tell the world it's being an agent like this is not, uh, it's not a career. It's a freaking lifestyle. You know, your your whole family suffers because of your job, if you're doing your job the right way, because it is a total commitment. Now, luckily for me, my wife was uh, a very understanding. You know, we uh, I had two sons from my first marriage that stayed in the United States. And then my wife and I, this my second wife, which we've been married now for almost 36 years, adopted our two daughters uh, while we were in Columbia. So, uh, you know, it kind of paid off for us on the family side, but she was very understanding of my, my responsibilities and she knew what our mission was. She recognized the importance of it. So she gave me, you know, phenomenal leeway to get things done, living in Medellin with Javier and the Columbia National Police for 18 months, leaving her in Bogota by herself when she didn't speak English. Um, she's a brave girl. She's one of the toughest women I've ever met in my life. So. Uh, I would give the credit to the family because I think the hardships are on them more than they are on us as individuals. Um, and I'll let Javier answer the second question for you there. Yeah. And uh, you know what? Um, you made a point where uh, you brought up an interesting point, you know, the movie uh, Sicario, you know, the CIA, you know what? And, and we used to tell people, remember, even in a foreign country, you follow, you follow the law. You, you know, we don't break laws. Uh, and we say it when in Medellin, we went on operations, we broke policies, rules, but we never broke the law. There's a difference, you know, and, and one of our differences, I remember in Colombia, but I'm talking back 
you know, uh, back then, uh, the late 80s, early 90s, was we're trying to build prosecutable cases as, as law enforcement. I, I want that evidence. I, I want to, I, I need to get it legally. I need to follow the rules of, uh, of evidence, get it uh, introduced into the court system, into the United States. And, and at that time, you know, we were experimenting. I mean, some of the Colombian cops were bringing them to the United States that would testify uh and uh i mean that i mean that to us was critical remember our job is to put a guy in jail to build a prosecutable case in you know we indict it goes off to prison but we got to lawfully introduce that evidence if it's if it's if it's seized or gained illegally you know the you know, the doctrine, the fruit of the poisonous tree, that's not going to be uh, admitted in court. And then you're going to be liable for that. So our difference is where the CIA is collecting intelligence and they do a great job. Their, their mission is a little different where our mission is put people, we indict, and we testify. And, uh, you know, there's another fallacy, you know, with, with informants. Uh, I remember a lot of guys, oh, this informant can't testify. Hey, <laughs> wrong. If he's out there, he did something. You know what? We try to protect him, of course. But last resort, if he has to testify, hey, he uh, he was part of a crime. He's got to testify. So that's that's the difference between us and then uh, back then. Yeah, I mean, it's the reason why it comes to mind is because now nowadays in the news, there's talk of um, labeling cartels as terrorist organizations so that they can take wholesale military action against them. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that would be productive or do you think in your experience with the cartels, because you have such an in-depth experience of them, do you think that would be uh, a good tactic to take or do you think that would really be the, really shoot us in the foot? Well, personally, I think uh, these organizations should be declared as terrorist organizations just because it brings additional sanctions uh, from other components within the U.S. government, especially for Treasury Department. Uh, businesses, anybody that they find that are associated with these organizations, you can freeze their assets, you can stop them from being involved in government contracts, doing business in the United States, that kind of thing. So there's some other sides to that. Um, you got to remember, you know, and this is, uh, you know this, so I don't, I don't mean to sound like I'm teaching you something here. You already know this. Mexico is a sovereign government. They, they're on our border. I just really don't see us invading Mexico because of the, of the drug traffickers. Would we like to, you know, just to help out the, not only our country, but the, the innocents in Mexico? Yeah, we probably would. But the chances of us invading Mexico are pretty slim. One of the things that we learned by working with Delta Force and the SEALs and, 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 I mean, just these highly, unbelievably trained and, and talented operators is they could go in and have some positive effect, but you can't just go into a sovereign country and, and impose your will on them. You'd have to be invited by the government of Mexico. And as we're seeing right now, they're not inviting us to do anything. You know, I, I just, their, their current president has taken, a, in my opinion, a very soft approach on the drug traffickers. He wants to win them through, you know, win them over by hugs and, and sh handshakes rather than addressing the violence. The, the deaths that are being caused down there, they rival what was going on in Colombia. 
and it, it seems like the Mexican drug traffickers want to surpass what what the uh, Medellin cartel and the Cali cartel were doing as far as violence. It's just it's horrendous what's going on down there. Javier, do you have a? What are your thoughts on it? Do you think they should be the the, the same? I mean, the, this organizations. I was happy when they declared them as terrorist groups, and like Steve said, because there's sanctions, there's stuff we can do in the United States. I remember the some of the Colombian Cali cartel had businesses. We stopped those businesses in the states, so you dry up their money. But and and remember uh, again, I just go by. You know what I, you know, <laughs> this crooks, uh, the only thing that uh, we found out that this crooks fear is coming to, you know, jail cell in the United States because they can't get away with stuff like they did in Mexico with Saul Chapo, what he could do. We've seen a lot of other traffickers in different countries where they're living, uh, they're in prison, but they're living in country clubs, just like Pablo Escobar. So, uh, uh, again, these traffickers, they hate coming to a jail cell in the States because they cannot get away with it, but we, we have to uh, enforce, uh, we have to prosecute, you know, and, and extradition is a great thing right now, and I just read where even Mexico, uh, even though we have our problems uh, with them, uh, but I think they're starting to realize they can't handle their traffickers, and I think uh, there's a time uh, where they're saying now it's it's taking about a year for Mexican traffickers to ex- to get extradited, which is good. We we, we need them here because they can do whatever they want in their own countries. So here's a question, and this is we've already discussed that you know once we kind of cut the head off the snake, there's three more ready to take its place. When we start talking about incarcerating criminals from other countries and bringing them into the U.S. or or any other country, then the, the, I guess that an argument could be made. Does it make sense to like utilize the resources of keeping these people incarcerated when we know somebody is just going to step into their place where they're from? So it's, it's kind of just like an additional cost on the taxpayers to, to bring them in would be an argument. Um, so I don't know. It, it, we don't have to talk about it, but it's something interesting that just popped into my head. So, well, you're, you're right. And it's, you remember, I don't know if you've ever seen a game in Canada called Whack-A-Mole. Yeah, where familiar, yep. the little heads pop up and you hit them with a hammer and another head pops up. That's exactly what the drug business is. There's, there's so many drug traffickers, so many evil people out there who, you know, and these aren't just um, single crime groups. We call, them, we call them polycriminals. If they can make money off of drugs, that's what they do. If they can make money off of counterfeit goods, that's good. Through human trafficking. Whatever it might be, you know, these, these organizations will utilize their resources and their smuggling routes to be involved in whatever criminal enterprise brings them money. That's what it's all about is building up their wealth and building up their power base and stroking their egos. So um, should we bring them and incarcerate them? I don't see another alternative right now. The biggest issue that Javier and I are, are trying to address now through various means is the demand. If we could do something to curb the demand for illegal narcotics, that's how you curb the supply issue. It's a basic law of economics, supply versus demand. You know, here in the United States, we've gotten so permissive, we want to let people just do anything they want to do, and hey, that's okay. Well, there's a lot of unintended consequences that go along with those decisions, which some of our states that are legalizing marijuana are starting to see. Um, People say, well, I mean, you know what our position is on legalization. We're not in favor of it. If if they can prove that marijuana has a bona fide um, 
documented medical purpose, I'm in favor of it. I don't have a problem with it. In fact, you know, we make it uh, plain that our job as DE agents was never to go after the users. We're going after the people that are killing people, the violence that goes along with it, the big manufacturers and distributors that are causing a lot of death and destruction throughout the world. So, but what would the alternative be if we don't put them in jail? If you just let them on free, they stay in these third world countries, they pay off all the politicians. You know, we saw that Chapo was living a lifestyle like a king inside the prison. Um, I mean, just the circumstances surrounding his last escape are just so ridiculously, it's a joke. It's a huge joke. What an embarrassment. Is that when, so here's a question, because you guys were brought in after his escape, if he would have been apprehended at that time instead of being killed, would they? Would you have extradited him back to the U.S. to, to be incarcerated, stand trial and be incarcerated in the United States? Well, you know what? We wanted to. However, the laws changed in Colombia uh, for extradition. You, yeah, we wanted him back. In the, that was our number one priority. Uh, but each country has a treaty uh, with the United States on, on extradition. Some countries still do not accept that. They said, no, nah, you can't extradite them. Uh, uh, however, uh, Colombia at that point, when Pablo Escobar surrendered into his custom-made prison, Colombia stopped extraditing people. So you couldn't do it. And, you know, we're not going to kidnap people or stuff like that. So you got to go with what the laws, what the treaties are uh, with that country. Uh, and, and you know what, but Pablo Escobar, when, when he escaped, I mean, his, I don't know, the mindset was was violence. The mindset was shooting. The mindset was killing. It, it, it was just, a, yeah, uh, I think the question is, did we want him in the States? Of course, we would have wanted him in the States, but you know, we knew that it was towards the end, it was just going to be a, a violent uh, battle with him. And, you know, uh, so he lost, we won. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, before, you know, I, we're kind of getting to the end of this and, and I, I do want to get some, just kind of some words of advice from you, uh, both of you for officers that are listening to this. Um, and then I want to be able to talk about what you guys have going on right now. So we talked a little bit about, you know, Steve, you, you mentioned the, you know, the toll of undercover work. Now there's a lot of officers. I'm not gonna say all, but there's a lot of officers that are always kind of shooting for those career cases. And like you said, you had, you had the case of all, like you had the one thrown on your lap where you got to, you know, this international type case. Is it worth it? Do you think for officers now, do you think it's worth it to, to try to get on these types of cases or now, have, now having been gone through it and now with everything afterwards, do you think that striving to, to be parts of these types of cases is, is worth it? So, Steve, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. You know, we, uh, we being law enforcement, being whatever first responder agency you might work for, whether you're military, but especially for law enforcement, we're all the freaking good guys, right? We're the ones that, that are the that thin line between innocent people and the evil people that are out there. So, you know, if it wasn't for the brave men and women, and we're retired, so we're not part of that line anymore. But if it wasn't for the brave men and women in law enforcement, who would protect the innocent? You know, so it's, it's absolutely worth it. If, uh, if you're a narcotics investigator, 
a lot of it has to do, I mean, we all want to work those big cases. If you don't want to work the big cases, you probably should find a different area of law enforcement to be in. Because when you're just taking out the street dealers, you need that done, but you're having minimal effect. It can't be ignored. I'm not taking any of the importance away from working levels at the uh, cases at the street level. Um, but, you know, you're not taking out the entire organization. And, and as we saw with Pablo, we even took out the entire organization. We took out his entire organization, and we still have drug problems. So if, I think it's, it's highly motivating when you work bigger cases and you see positive results. But you know what was also motivating is I ran a mobile enforcement team for DEA out of the Atlanta Field Division for two years. And we worked undercover in Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. And we, our goal was to go after the most violent traffickers. When we would go in these neighborhoods, you know, we'd set up an undercover business for a few months working with local law enforcement. When we would take these murderers and kidnappers and, you know, these violent criminals off the street, when we'd take them out of their houses, you'd have people standing on the side of the streets as you're leaving the neighborhood applauding you. I'll be honest with you. I mean, Taking out Escobar was great. It's it's our uh, life after DEA is unbelievable, but there's no more satisfaction than knowing that you helped a small local community by taking some jackass who was causing problems away from them. They no longer have to deal with that. Um, so it's it's absolutely sure. worth it. You know, I would pursue yeah, that. It- Right. And Steve is correct. And just, I know we were running out of time, but in some advice to some of the officers uh, out there, remember some, uh, like I said, this, this crooks, the street guys are just as violent as uh, some of the bigger guys right now. The violence is just unbelievable. But also when you, when you're working some of the cases and, you know, I've done a lot of undercover work and undercover in our job, it's a small percentage. You know, we do the big investigations once in a while. You know, we do some undercover, but there's a lot of different tactics. But just some advice, guys. And I'm talking about ladies and gentlemen out there, police officers. You're do not always remember you're the good guy. You're not a crook. You're an actor, and do not let that crook tell you what to do. I've seen this mistake by a lot of young undercover officers, agents, where they'll, uh, you know, I did it. <laughs> That's why I talk about it. I made a lot of mistakes. It almost got me killed. But you're in charge. And if you need to walk away, you walk away. You're you're not a real crook. You know what I'm saying? You 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 know we have that line, we have that badge, where you know what? Hey, you know I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna go into that house with you. I'm not gonna try that dope. You know, there's a lot of mistakes, and just also we deal with a lot of informants. And the other advice is, you're in charge, not the informant. A lot of guys go down because of that. So anyway, that's my two cents worth. Uh, at yeah, that's a great point. That's a very great point. You guys, ha- so let's talk about your book real quick. So Manhunters, if somebody picks up that book, and there's a lot of people listening that I'm sure will, what what can they expect out of this book? Is it the whole story start to finish? Or like, what what's the meat and potatoes of it? Well, um, it's, it's kind of unique. It's, it's somewhat of an autobiography about Javier and I. We talk about our childhood, how we got long, uh, interested in law enforcement. Uh, you know, I, I, my first run with the police was about age 10 and, and, uh, it had a, it had a lifelong effect on me, the way the police officers handled the situation, which was good. Uh, but we talk about our families. We talk about other cases that we worked on. And then the, the last part of the book, we, we tell the true story about Pablo Escobar. 
And that's what we really like about the book is there's other books out there about Pablo Escobar. None of them are 100% true. Uh, you know, and we were interviewed for some of those books. One of them is extremely popular, more popular than our book so far. And the uh, the innuendos in the second half of that book, we do not agree with at all. So our book is 100% the truth. Also, our, our speaking uh, platform, you know, we're into our fifth year of our world tour is what our agents call it. Um, you know, this is a, we, we're living a retirement that we never expected. <laughs> We never dreamt in a million years we'd be doing anything like we're doing now. But we travel all around the world, and the purpose is we tell the true story about Pablo Escobar. I mean, nobody loves Martin Narcos, the Netflix series, more than Javier and I, but it's not all true. You know, it's there's a lot of Hollywood added in there. They made a great, phenomenal action series, but it's, uh, there's a lot of untruths in there. So... Uh, that's our book and our speaking events are all about telling the true story about Pablo Escobar. And when we speak to people, you know, we enter, it's not just a lecture. We introduce humor. We use videos. We use photographs. Uh, we try to get the audience involved through our Q&A, and, and it ends up being a lot of fun. So um, that's where we are right now. That's really cool. I do have a quick question for you on the on the Netflix narco side of things. How how cool is it to have a a show that's really about your you know the one of the biggest cases you guys ever worked? How does that how does that how does that come about? And you know, like, how do you feel about it? Yeah, well, you know what, we never expected it's it's a great show, and and the actors. Uh, uh, Pascal and uh, Holbrook, I mean, wow, they did a pheno phenomenal job. They're great guys. Uh, we work with them. And it's something that, you know, you never expect. What? This, there's a guy with my name on TV. It's like surreal, you know. But uh, you know what? It's it's great bragging rights. And uh, I tell my friends, hey, you mess with me, man, I'll have you killed here. You know, <laughs> Everybody, you know? so it, it, it's a, it was a great show. Uh, and uh, the actors were just did a great job, but it's it's funny when you see it on TV. It's like, nah, that's not me. You know? So anyway, but they did do a good job. And remember, all shows are based on uh, they have artistic licenses to incorporate a little bit that's not true in theirs. That's what makes it uh, makes it a great show. Right. So if you like the show, now you have to get the book and get the real information. Is what we're saying. So. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's it. Absolutely. Where can these folks listening to the show, the officers that are listening to this, where, if they want to get more information about both of you and about the book and about your speaking engagements, where can they find you? If you go to our website, uh, www.deanarcos.com, so it's D-E-A-N-A-R-C-O-S.com, um, there's everything you want, you want, ever want to know, and probably a lot of stuff you don't want to know about us on there. It's uh, we've got an active calendar that shows when and where we'll be around the world. Uh, there's fan photos. There's a section for some of the videos that we've been involved with over the years. Uh, I, th I think we're probably going to add a podcast section now because you guys are. That's <laughs> true crime is the uh, one of the major podcast categories right now. Uh, if people are interested in us coming to speak at at events, we do corporate events. We speak at colleges and universities. We do theaters and performing arts centers, uh, civic groups. It's amazing the, the opportunities we have to speak. All of that is involved in there. Now, as far as our book, you can order our book from our website, but only in the United States. We, we're not allowed to sell it in Canada. 
St. Martin's Press is our publisher, and they have uh, a bookseller up there. And, and uh, shame on me, I just forgot their name. I can't remember the name of the bookseller there. But you can order it on uh, Books a Million online, Amazon. Uh, you can find it just about anywhere. Just Google it, and you'll be able to find it. Yeah, I'll make sure to I'll make sure to find the links so that anybody who's it doesn't matter if you're in the U.S., Canada, around the world, if they want to find it, I'm sure we'll have links for them on the on the show notes page and same to your website and everything. So that's awesome. Listen, gentlemen, I I really appreciate you taking the time. I know how busy you are, and it was a complete honor to have you on the show and and talk with you today. Okay, thank you very much, Perfect. Adam. We wanted to be yeah. here. All right, thanks for taking the time today to listen to another episode of the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you stay up to date and get all of the recent episodes that come out. Again, if you haven't checked it out already, the International Law Enforcement Training Summit taking place July 2020. It's going to be available for all access past use if you're listening to this after the summit has gone through. You can still check that out. Everybody should go to iletsummit.com. Make sure to get your pass now. We'll see you next time on the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Until then, stay safe. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.